You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. In shaken baby syndrome cases, the shaken baby syndrome triad appears. One component of that triad is retinal hemorrhage. Today we will explore this particular finding in depth. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Elise Torsinski, who is an ophthalmic pathologist and a consultant to the Medical Examiner's Office for over 15 years. She has studied over 175 shaken baby cases and has been an expert witness in 25 trials. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of shaken baby syndrome? It basically goes back to the early 1970s. Gulf Kitchen, England, and Kathy here in the United States described children that had subdural hematomas and some retinal hemorrhages and did not have any external signs of injury. Gaffey called this whiplash syndrome, and then that term has gradually been altered over the years to a number of uh, different things, which shaken baby seems to have held on the longest, but at the moment it's accidental and non-accidental trauma. During the 1970s, there was an increased interest in Gradually, physicians became more aware of of abuse to children and especially uh, of the possibility of shaking. The 1980s laws came about in which a careful examination of these children came about. Technology also changed during this period. CT scanning became uh, much more abundant and universal, and this was very good to detect the subdural hematomas. In the 1990s, shaking with or without impact uh, was became the term, and there was a lot of confusion and discussion whether an impact was needed in addition to the shaking. There have many, been many scientific and mathematical theories, computations on the various forces that produce subdural hematoma and retinal hemorrhages, but none of them have been totally satisfactory. Animal models were tried, but uh, monkeys' heads and eyes are not exactly the same as a human, and artificial dolls were used, but also uh, these were limited in in their ability to determine the the forces. The upshot of all this is that determining the amount and type of force or injury is very complicated in this particular injury, and it's almost impossible to calculate on a specific case. But what is important is that CT scanning did show uh, subdural hematomas in children who had no ex- uh, who came into the emergency room without a satisfactory explanation for their sudden seizures, their lethargy, their unconsciousness. And so CT scanning proved to be a real boon in the diagnosis of subdural hematomas and then people could investigate a little more and decide whether this could possibly be a shaken baby syndrome. And then the idea that retinal hemorrhages frequently occurred with this came to the fore. And so the two things are pretty much the diagnostic categories for a shaken baby. Later on, there was such a willingness on the part of pediatricians and emergency room doctors that any child that came into the emergency room with subdural hematomas and retinal hemorrhages were just automatically classified as being shaken babies or what is called now non-accidental injury. So these patients were rubber-stamped, as they say, with this diagnosis when it may not have been actually SBS or shaken baby syndrome. That's correct. And probably somewhere between around 90% or maybe even more of these children have been subjected to shaking. But there are always a few in which that possibility 
is really in question. So how does ophthalmic pathology enter into the foray? Well, it enters into the foray when the child has died, and the body goes to the medical examiner's office, and the medical examiner removes the eyes. Sometimes the child had been examined in the emergency room, and retinal hemorrhages were found. They want to corroborate that. And in other instances where the child died at home or in the, in the ambulance, want to determine if there are retinal hemorrhages. If in addition uh, to a subdural hematoma, which is found on the autopsy, whether there are also retinal hemorrhages. Because this is a small group in the whole group of abused children in which there may be no signs of external injury or very limited signs of external injury. And there's no obvious cause for the death of the child. Well, are there any other causes that you're aware of that can cause a retinal hemorrhage? Oh, there are many. There are at least 20 different categories. For instance, hemophilia, coagulopathies, occasionally meningitis or DIC. Things that cause hemorrhages in adults, such as diabetes, are not found in these babies. Sometimes there are vein occlusions, chest compressions can produce uh, hemorrhages. So there are a whole lot of things that can produce uh, retinal hemorrhages and even some systemic diseases. Can you talk a little bit about the shaking and the vibrations of the brain and the orbits? When the child is shaken, the different tissues, for instance, in the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid which bathes the brain, the dural covering, the skull, move back and forth with the to-and-fro movement of, of the shaking. But as the tissues, all these different tissues have different densities, they move at different rates. So there is a tension which is put on the vessels that cross the space from the brain to the, to the dura. And this tension breaks some of these vessels and produces the subdural hemorrhage. In the eye, the same thing happens. The vitreous and lens in the eye move at a different rate than the retina, and the sclera in the eye, so that the small fibers which attach from the vitreous to the retinal vessels are sheared or are pulled on those retinal vessels and produce bleeding. In your experience, is that usually as a result of abuse? Shaking very often is. But let me just say this to you. You know, sometimes if you have a parent who gets very panicky when their child seems to have lost consciousness or um, has a seizure or um, causes them worry, very often a, a parent or a caretaker will pick the child up and give them a shake and say, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? So it can be an instinctive act on the part of the caretaker rather than a deliberate shaking because the baby is crying too much or misbehaving. And does that ever come out during trial, that story? Not, not in the trials that I've been in that I know of. But you see, I sometimes don't know what other... Uh, testimony has been given because if you're a witness, you are not allowed to listen to the rest of the testimony. What what usually is the natural history of SBS? Do these do these babies always die? Do some get better? No, as far as we know, about a third of them die. About a third of them have minor to very serious residual neurological deficits and can be actually bedridden for the rest of their lives. And about a third of them recover. The number that recovers is probably larger because many of them probably never even get to the emergency room. They're just taking care of at home. The parent or the caretaker feels that, well, they'll just get better. And if it's been a small amount of bleeding, they often do. 
and the retinal hemorrhages clear up rather rapidly. What What is the typical story for shaken baby syndrome that someone in an emergency room setting should look for? Well, probably the most common is that, oh, the baby wasn't behaving correctly and lost, uh, became lethargic and unconscious, wasn't eating well, possibly developed seizures, and I couldn't arouse them, and so I brought them in. But very often there's an interval of lucidity from the time of shaking until the time that these symptoms develop. And very often the caretaker will have put the baby down for one, five hours before they wake the baby up or try to wake the baby up and become concerned about them. There can be kind of a lack of concern on the part of the perpetrator for these changes in the behavior of the child. Is it possible the perpetrator is scared and just waiting for for the child to get better and hoping that the child gets better? Oh, I think that's what happens a lot of the time. So there's a specific time lag in the sequence that's important to listen for. Yes, and if a parent or the caretaker notices that the child's behavior in, in level of consciousness especially has changed significantly, they should immediately bring the child to the hospital or call 911 to get the ambulance to bring them in. Because if they're brought to the hospital, the diagnosis is made quickly, and they go to surgery and have the subdural hematoma evacuated, they have a very good chance of a full recovery. How often did you see cases that were labeled or rubber-stamped as SBS, and in fact they turned out to be something completely different? Um, Probably three or four times. So not that many times out of 175 cases. That's right. And several of these cases were in children that lived, so they weren't cases that came to the autopsy. Are you familiar what usually happens to a family once this shaken baby syndrome has been diagnosed by the emergency room? Yes. For instance, if the person is guilty, it's surprising, but very often other members of the family will have an awareness that this person had a short fuse or this person... uh, was capable of of harming the baby. They're not terribly surprised. And a lot of these, unfortunately, are dysfunctional families. So they've had various problems with other children or other members of the family in the past. In a family in which everything has been fine, a good mother, a good father, possibly other siblings, and no other kind of episode, and the child falls or the child loses consciousness and they're brought to the hospital, and the doctor makes this diagnosis of a shaken baby. And unless there's a very careful background check by social workers, DCFS, to get a very good psychosocial profile, everybody kind of falls in lockstep with the diagnosis of the physician as this being a shaken baby. And further investigations kind of grind to a halt, which then for this family, which has been a good family, uh, throws them into years of trying to defend themselves against this criminal charge. And you can imagine that that can be terribly disruptive to the average family. Devastating. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. Have you ever seen more than one baby from the same family have shaken baby syndrome? You know, I have a couple of cases in my files where I'm not exactly sure that they came from the same family. They have the same name and came from the re- relatively the same area, but because there were years that separated them, I could not exactly determine that they had come from the same family. And 
when SBS does present itself, is it usually a one-time episode, or is there some history of abuse that predates that? Sometimes there is, in cases where there is physical evidence of injuries that occurred over a period of time, you know, healing external wounds, cigarette burns, some of which are fresh and some old, other scars, um, healing fractures. These are not the cases that I particularly got involved in because... Those are the easy ones. Those are kind of the easy ones, yes. On the other hand, I had cases in which I'd say, why did they send me these eyes? These eyes are perfectly normal. When I read the autopsy report, this child had a ruptured liver, a ruptured spleen, healing fractures on the bones, had other body injuries, but nothing got into the eyes. So, so the spectrum is very broad. Doctor, I'd like to thank you for illuminating the topic of shaken baby syndrome. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.